think I want to begin today by having a look at what stress and resilience actually are. Now, in terms of physics, stress is the force mm. applied to something, while strain is the consequence on the system. It's what happens. It's so stress, strain is kind of what happens to the system, and stress is the force applied to that system. If we look in terms of biology, stress is anything that any any external thing that disrupts the homeostatic balance and homeostatic balance is how the whole system and all its different elements such as blood gas levels acid alkaline balance nu uh, nutrients temperature uh, oxygen levels everything in the system are held in balance between both an upper and a lower limit and those limits define our living experience and outside of those limits upper or lower we get sick and we die now, technically, then, the stress response, it, it, as we think of it now, is, is any psychological and physiological event. So psychological event, physiological event, or environmental event that disturbs our homeostasis, um, that disturbs the dynamic state between those limits held within the parameters of well-being. But the word stress has begun to be used, and this is from Hans Selye, but it's begun to be used instead of you know instead of, we should use the word strain really but we use the word stress for the consequences of those stressors so that's how we use the word stress mm -hmm. so i'm going to use it like that because that's how everyone uses it and that's what we understand so we think then of stress then in the way we use it as the consequence of all those stressors whether they're environmental or psychological mm -hmm. or emotional or physiological stuff that's happening inside the, the physiology of the body and in that sense, then, stress is very much where any demand on us as a system exceeds the resources to meet it. So we don't have enough resources to meet the particular demand, and we go into um, a, a stress response. Now, the interesting thing is it's not just about whether it's actual demand. It can also be perceived demand. So if we feel for whatever reason and there are also there are many many reasons for this there are many variables on this okay but if we perceive that we don't have the resources to meet the demand a stress response occurs and that perception could be subliminal it could be unconscious it doesn't have to be a, a really conscious decision do i have the resources to meet this most often it's an immediate triggered reflexive response about whether we have the resources and of course that depends on how we learned as children to manage mm -hmm. stressors did we did we you know what learn what what did our parents teach us about how to deal with stress how did they teach us to deal with environmental stressors temperature for example how did they teach us to deal with psychological stressors what did what we what did we learn from them how did they teach us to deal with emotional stressors how do they teach us to deal with physiological stressors? And if it wasn't our parents, maybe we had significant others. Maybe, you know, maybe it was, maybe we were in care. What did our carers teach us? What did our schools teach us? What does our culture teach us to pay attention to and how to respond to um, individual stressors? So stress is where any demand on the system either exceeds the resources to meet it or is perceived at a conscious or an unconscious level to exceed the resources to meet it. And what we get then is a stress response. Now, if you meet a stressor and you feel either consciously or unconsciously or both, that you, you I've got enough resource, I can do this. You have enough resource 
whether it's time, skills, energy, money, whatever's needed. If you've got enough of that, then the stressor is a challenge. These distinctions are important because they help us find our way through with regarding to managing and dealing with stress really well. So I'll say that again. If we perceive consciously or unconsciously that we have enough resources to meet that, whether it's time, energy, money, or whatever, then that stressor simply becomes a challenge. It's something we meet. But if it feels it, if it feels it's we just don't have what it takes, and again, a lot of this is learned. We learned, we learn how to do this. Yeah? If we feel we don't have what it takes, we can't deal with that situation well. Then again, we go into a stress response, a cascade of responses, which are psychological, emotional, and physiological, that then change our perception, that change our way of being in the world, that affect us in a variety of ways. It's an important distinction because the perceived stress and the perceived resources may be quite different to what's actually available. Useful distinctions. I'm going to talk about four kinds of stress. The first is environmental stress. And environmental stress is things like insufficient nutrition, not enough not enough food, not enough water. It's too hot. It's too cold. And, and these, these can be managed to a degree. I mean, people sit in ice baths. You know, it's not a problem. But if we sat in something like minus 70, we wouldn't do so well. You know, there are edges where it becomes intolerable. And, you know, when we're working with those edges in a, a gentle way and ice is, you know, fairly manageable, minus 40 isn't, um, you know, those yields that we benefit in, in, in what's called the response to a sublethal stressor, something doesn't kill us, something doesn't kill us makes us stronger, basically. And that the word for that is hormesis. And, um, and when we work on the edge of hormesis, we tend to build resilience in the system, the capacity for the system to bounce back in a good way. So working well with stressors and finding the edge of hormesis is a really good way of building resilience into the system. And, you know, a lot of people are doing things these days like intermittent fasting and things like this. And again, fasting can be really, really good. It's a good way of working with building resilience in the system in terms of, for example, insulin sensitivity. If we take, you know, any of those environmental stressors, like I said, hydration, heat, nutrition, take any of them to an extreme, it's death. So there are edges, okay? The second kind of um, stress I want to talk about is developmental stress. And developmental stress is about childhood adversity, largely. It's about things that happen in childhood which change the way our brain grows. And one of the things that happens in childhood is with huge amounts of stress hormones in place, you know, consistent, continuous cortisol, which is the long-term mediator of stress, the brain doesn't grow as well. That the big nerves that join up the networks in the brain don't aren't myelinated as well. And in that that loss of myelination or the reduction in myelination in the brain, the different brain networks can't communicate effectively with each other. So we may have a strong response to um, a, a particular trigger, and it may be a strong emotional response, but our brain hasn't grown. The, the communicative capacities then to be able to mediate that with a prefrontal cortical response, which is informed choice. We know the outcomes of this because if we look at prison populations, we find a huge percentage, and we're talking about upwards of, upwards of 60%, probably up towards 90% of the prison population 
are people that went through childhood adversity whose brains were riddled with cortisol as young people. And the brain doesn't have the capacity to respond to situations in the same way. Now, if somebody, you know, somebody's hit in the head with a hammer, we would say they were brain damaged and we wouldn't expect them to be able to make certain responses. But if we hit somebody in the head with childhood adversity as a young developing being, we expect them to take full responsibility for their choices. It doesn't make sense. But one of the outcomes of childhood adversity is this developmental stress where you know the whole all lots of different networks in the brain can't talk effectively or even where the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis which is the hypothalamus is the kind of core brain part that runs the whole endocrine system with all your glands and that's the hypothalamic pituitary which is what it communicates with in terms of the glands and then all the way down to the adrenals all the glands in the body it's called the hpaa hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis and that can get set up at a very early age depending on the stress the child experiences so these these kind of developmental stressors then affect the rest of life the effect of how we see our resources psychologically emotionally physiologically environmentally how do how can we handle challenge well, that's set up by by those early years experiences. So developmental stress is really too important to understand. And of course, this plays out in terms of trauma, you know, big T trauma, capital big T, the major big horrible things that happen, but also the small T trauma, which is all the sort of little relentless diminishments, the, um, you know, put downs, the dismissals, the neglect, the somebody ignoring you the whole time, all this kind of stuff, which... And, and again, if we understand brain development, we understand that we are relational. We grow out of relationship. We are relationship. There's no independent, self-made man, woman, being, anywhere thing. There's no self-made person. When we understand this, we understand there's no self-made person anywhere. That doesn't exist. We are relational. We grow out of relationship. We come out of moons. We we grow in and as relationship. This is relationship. This is it. This is what we are. So it's really important because the um, third kind of stress I want to think about is social and interrelational stress. And this is directly connected to early years development, of course, like we talked about with the developmental stress. But social and uh, interrelational stress, you know, is, is the patterns of emotional and narrative response to complex relational dynamics that we get into. We get into particular qualities of relationship and we respond in particular ways. We have patterns of why and where and how we're angry. How do we experience those kind of responses to situations, to relational situations? And of course, for us mammals, emotion is one of the most stressful, triggering things. Relationship is... In, in many ways for us mammals the ultimate stressor you know are we do we belong are we being excluded are we being loved are we being appreciated you know what's happening in terms of that relational dynamic and how that plays out what are the kind of narratives we tell ourselves about our relationships what's the role that we play in those narratives who who are we when we're engaging in that how are we responding to that where do we learn these patterns do they serve us at all these kind of questions can we change those patterns to create more optimal responses? Of course, um, the answer to that is, is going to be ultimately yes, of course. Right? And the fourth kind of stress I want to talk about is perceptual stress. There's really powerful recognition to understand this because perceptual stress means we can do something about it. 
And perceptual stress is how we see what's happening. How do we see what is happening to us? And what can we do about it? And really very much, this is largely where, you know, breathwork and mind training. And I think that conscious breathwork is necessary. It's a necessary part of dealing with stress, but it's not sufficient. It's not enough. Breathwork by itself can't do the job. So we have to have breathwork and mind training, brain training, meditative depth, if you think of it that way. You know, meditative depth is simply going into your own brain and you working with self-applied neuroplasticity to change stuff in there, change patterns, which you can do with changing attention. So we have to learn attentional skills. We have to learn change skills to be able to change and, and find choice, find spaces of awareness within the synaptic patterns of our experience. And this is where breathwork and mind training comes into its own. The two are part of the same puzzle. Like I said, just breathwork, just doing box breathing, for example, is like applying a, a sticking plaster on an arterial bleed. It's not getting to the root of the problem. So box breathing is great to pull you out of the state when you're in it, for example. Box breathing is also really good, or any other kind of breathing. I'm just using box breathing example. Any other kind of breathing is a really good practice pattern to start to work with altering your states over time and learning to navigate and be in different states over time really successfully. But by itself, it's not enough. You have to have the capacity to go in and work with that self-applied neuroplasticity, which comes from mind training, from brain training take a breath mm. a lot of stress is perceptual and perception is about where we're seeing from where do, where are we looking from in this human experience how are we seeing what our attention is on yeah well that that's a really important thing because if we see a particular stressor in a particular way consciously or unconsciously and respond to that we can over time shift that perspective it takes time it takes practice it's not necessarily immediate but it might be i think the beauty of this recognition is that we can take responsibility for our patterns and responses then and responsibility is what it's all about it's about being able to see that we can make choices you know regardless of what happened to us no matter how difficult life was as a child Sometimes it's really difficult. No matter what happens when we're a teenager, you know, when the brain is going through big changes, lots of neuroplastic experience then under the influence of the of the um, sex hormones. No matter what happens to us as an, adult, as an adult, what we can do with that over time is we can learn to take responsibility for those experiences and become response-able. We are able to respond rather than react and be reflexive. And of course, you know, this is an ongoing skill. I have had enough challenges in my life to have to work with reactivity and reflexivity. You know, I've, I've had to do that work over and over and over and over again. And, I, you know, I, I'm not saying it's easy, but it's something we can choose and something we can do. It's a choice that becomes available to us. So I've had to do a lot of work to recover from my own childhood adverse experiences, those adversities that I went through as a child. Um, you know, at home in the culture I grew up and in school as well and in other social situations so those kind of traumas really inform how we deal with stress now these four kinds of stress are all interrelated 
they're all interrelated and 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 what we're looking at is beginning to work out and understand the patterns of how how do i do stress yeah you know another aspect another key meta discipline that i teach is embodied awareness you know if if you notice your upper trapezius muscles these ones these are powered by the the 11th cranial nerve if you're noticing in certain social situations that one or both of your upper, upper trapezius muscle switches on and it kind of pulls you up like this you know there's a bit of levered scapula going on there but if you notice this muscles happening here like this yeah when you're getting into a social situation or if you're noticing some of the other muscles that are connected to the cranial nerves the social engagement system firing up in particular situations it's good to be able to catch that pattern it takes time so the third meta discipline i bring into here we've talked about conscious breath work necessary but not sufficient mind training necessary but not sufficient and then we've got embodied awareness and the three give you a trinity of of strategies with which you can really begin to feel into how this organism does what it does in those stress situations and how to then begin to unpick undo and resolve that we'll have a look more at these meta disciplines just a little chat about resilience what is resilience anyway was resilience is the capacity to bend bend like a tree in the wind and actually the word was first used in terms of um arboriculture working with trees resilience is where we ride stress we surf stress um there's a word for good stress and it's eustress eu eustress it comes from the greek for good the word is eustress and we use the experiences to become even stronger more committed uh, more playful, more creative, more curious. And we find within that experience even more of the resource or skill we need to make that demand. So we're finding in the experience the resources to meet the demand. We're not preempting that experience and considering oh, I don't have the resources at a conscious or unconscious level. Usually it's unconscious. We're going into that and surfing and, and allowing ourselves to fall off. We're meeting the demand and we're finding where our edges are and then learning to grow more skill in that. So you can see there's curiosity and there's playfulness and there's a, a childlike nature in that. So that resilience is learning on the job, if you like. Resilience isn't a collapse into the adrenalized reaction of a stress cascade. It's a, it, you know, you might have adrenaline there. Resilience will have adrenaline going, but we have other neurotransmitters going as well. You know, epinephrine, you know, one of the catecholamines in the brain, but also dopamine. We're going to be having some anticipation reward. You know, when we link adrenaline and dopamine together, we've got a really nice cocktail there. You know, it's a good, a good combination. There's other neurotransmitters we can come in. It's not just an adrenalized stress response. We've got other neurotransmitters that come in. And again, we're learning to train all this into our system with those meta-disciplines, you know, conscious breath work, mind training and also embodied awareness. And what we're looking at is bringing those, and really understanding what those metatismans are, and bringing them into, uh, in, into the dance, into the play of life, so that we can live more optimally. An optimal living is what we want, surely. An optimal living doesn't involve collapsing into an infinite array of stress cascades um, when we are unconsciously triggered based on the perceived resource availability at an unconscious level that we may have learned as young people. So we're finding the liberation from those patterns that created us 
that we were woven from and we're learning to free up those patterns and create different experiences different patterns different ways of being take a breath take a conscious breath really slowly through the nose and breathe gently out and release that go resilience is where we can anticipate the possibility of meeting the challenge we can consider the possibility that there may be fun in this yeah? it becomes a sport and we give ourselves um we give ourselves the freedom and the rewards of meeting it you know it's it can be about goals it can be about giving ourselves useful goals step-by-step -step goals and meeting those goals and giving ourselves that dopamine hit when we do this you know it's a really beautiful game that we play then with life of building resilience finding resilience in this challenge what's the next challenge there are other things that pay attention you know really really matter here what's the quality of our relationships like like i said emotional stress is one of the most demanding and one of the most crippling um experiences we can have you know if we go into really difficult relational situations it can be so painful so difficult to work with it can take up so much of our time so again you know the mind training where we come in and we have the capacity to be attentive to the complex emotional arrays that are running and also then to redirect our attention onto what we choose so mind training and breath work breath work is teaching us to down regulate is teaching us to upregulate. is teaching us to resolve trauma is teaching us to clarify a system but ultimately it's teaching us to optimize how do we how do we know on the inside without the pieces of kit that are measuring stuff and there's my i've got an aura ring on here which is measuring things as i'm talking but how do we know that we've slept well do we need an aura ring to tell us that we slept well or do we wake up in the morning feeling amazing sleep is crucial with regard to stress getting a good night's sleep a really really good night's sleep and therefore getting a good night's sleep is dependent on us setting ourselves up for sleep before we go to bed if our world is full of emotional drama that makes all of that much more difficult so trying to cultivate a relationship with emotion our own emotions one of emotional intelligence and one of the emotions of other people and the synaptic experience of that the uh, social engagement that is interrelational space cultivating that emotional intelligence is profoundly beneficial in terms of us managing our own stress states it's got that relational edge we've got sleep you know we know full well that you know being in a well-lived in body being in that body that is exercised that moves that moves as well as it can that's reasonably cardiovascularly fit that can move air in and out really well all of that contributes to psycho-emotional well-being as well we can't separate the body out from the psychology you know psychology is physiology Physi physiology is also muscles and bones it's mechanics you know it's you we can't separate it all out so how we live in this physicality is how we live in this physicality now of course there are people who will say you know we're not just physical bodies we are spiritual beings having a human experience yep i've heard those stories a lot they're fascinating aren't they and um i have a different view if we're going to consider because there's there's certain ways that the human experience tries to manage complexity and one of the ways is meaning making meaning making is really really important as is belief and we can talk about that a little bit as well i suspect you know meaning making is profoundly important what meanings do we make out of what is happening 
And the meanings we make out of what is happening, of course, make perfect sense to us, the person making the meaning. They may not to other people, but they do to us. And we make meanings that help us feel safe. We make meanings that help us make sense out of complexity. And it doesn't mean the meaning is right. It just means that we've made that meaning to try and make sense out of the situation that we find ourselves in, and we go with the best possible meaning. Are meanings right? Well, arguably, no. They're way too limited. They're way too small. If we're looking at all the informational web of the whole universe, then trying to pull out some little tiny anthropocentric meaning out of that is probably a little bit um, limiting and limited. So we have to understand meaning-making as a tool of the brain, a way the brain works, rather than meaning-making being something that describes the nature of the universe. So we can relax our meaning-making, and the more we can relax our meaning-making and let it be creative and playful, then the more we can comfortably meet life's challenges, because we're not stuck in a meaning that we made previously that now no longer fits the current situation. So we have a flexibility of meaning-making. And that's a massively useful stress management strategy. The same with beliefs. If we have certain beliefs, you know, I'm a spiritual being having a, I'm using that as an example, obviously. I'm having a spiritual, you know, I'm a, I'm a spiritual being having a human experience or something of that kind. That creates a delineation between the human experience and the spiritual experience. It creates two and I'm not a great believer in a tunus. I know full well that every you know lung full of oxygen air that I take, 21% oxygen, you know that oxygen has been made by plants, and it goes to every single cell in my body. And therefore, you know, whenever I look into the universe, I don't find a place where there are two things. That's a fascinating illusion. You know, there's only one thing. It's got edges, appearance of edges, neural edges. The edges of this neural experience you know we can feel those and we define the edges we define things in terms of edges and so forth right but ultimately it's this cosmos is one thing and it's all going to entropy it's all going to go eventually it's one thing dancing the many is the one the one is the many so if creating these distinctions between you know there's this which is separate to that that eventually is going to create some kind of dissonance and it's eventually going to lead to a point where we have um, an incapacity to make sense out of it. It's going to break. Those kind of dissonances lead to eventually to some kind of psycho-emotional collapse because they're not tenable in, you know, in the face of all the different phenomenal possibilities of the universe. They're not going to sustain very well. So the kind of beliefs and the kind of meanings we come up with, and beliefs are kind of like ossified, slightly rigid meanings that we've come up with where we where we you know those can kick in really quickly so again one of the things i teach is believe belief artistry being really wise with our beliefs because belief is useful belief is important and belief is really useful i'm not knocking belief i'm saying that with belief we have to use it extremely well we have to become an artist of belief um and never take them too seriously so that we can use it we can do incredible things with belief we believe in our, believe in what we're doing, believe in, in in purpose, for example. And purpose, I think of as an ongoing directional experience that we're creating in the world. And, you know, um, we believe in what we're doing in some way, believe in what we're giving, believe in what we're offering, believe in who we are. You know, there's all sorts of levels of belief and aspects of belief which are extremely functional. 
I'm not knocking those. I'm talking about the rigidity of belief that can occur that then makes us unable to deal with the actual uh, demands, intricacies, complexities, and challenges of life. As a human being, you're a powerful, wonderful, learning system. Every cell in your body is consistently responding to its environment internally and externally. That's what learning is. Every cell in your body is learning. Every, every part of you is in this constant learning dance with the universe. And sadly, often at school, we learn that we can't learn. One of the things I learned at school was that I wasn't a good learner. And I don't believe that anymore, but I did. For many, many, many years, I believed that I wasn't very good at learning. I learned that I was a failure. I, you know, schools teach us to fail, and they teach us to feel like failures often, not always, but we're not. We're not. It's just those environments we were in weren't very good at uh, showing us what good learners we were. That's all. And they weren't directing us in the way we, as individuals, need to be directed. We learn best when we no longer blame ourselves or others where we shame ourselves or others. Um, so we're no blaming and no shaming anymore. And we also, when we lose guilt as a learning experience, guilt is a short-term learning experience. Oh, damn, I wish I'd not done that. I am not going to do that again. I'm going to pay attention to this. That's a learning curve. If we get into the toxic guilt of beating ourselves with it over and over and over again, that's not necessarily very helpful. So we have to really understand these enemies of outsourcing responsibility. Outsourcing responsibility and blame makes us victims that's going to create endless stress responses shaming ourselves shaming is where we are we feel bad about our existence now a lot of cultures historically have shamed children and um, you know i've had my share of that as a young child where i was shamed so roundly and so successfully about life energy about making a noise about being vibrant about taking up too much space we get shamed about sexuality we get shamed in so many ways and getting rid you know when we go into a shame spiral a shame response it takes us into a space where we do not have the resources to meet the challenge you know our life energy itself is at fault and that makes it very difficult to manage life. So if we're living in blame, where we're outsourcing responsibilities, blaming ourselves or others, yeah, and always feeling shame, and we're not using guilt wisely as a learning curve, but instead using it as a toxic tool to hit ourselves with, what we get from that is we get endless complexity dealing with life's challenges. We get the stress response. So what we're learning to do is we're learning to stay in a learning frame. Being able to deal with stress well means we learn to stay in a learning frame. And the learning frame is a mental and emotional state of um, appreciation, hmm. curiosity. Curiosity, oh, that's interesting. How did that happen? What's happening here? So observation, appreciation, curiosity, and eventually choice and kindness. Kindness is really important. Kindness to ourselves, kindness to others. So these, this learning frame, which is observation, appreciation, curiosity, kindness, aiming to rest in choice in each moment as much as possible. Now, observation means we can clearly see the nature of what's happening. We can see the nature of the phenomena, whether it's thoughts, phenomena as feelings or as body sensations or as objects or about people, what's actually happening in an environment, actually understanding what is the interaction between these things? How do they interrelate? What's really occurring? And getting clearer and clearer, more clear seeing around what this array of interrelationships interactions is like 
And curiosity is a playful inquiry into how things connect and relate. How do they connect and relate? What is the relationship? I'm really curious. Appreciation, in my view, is really important. Appreciation is a precursor to kindness, but also it's a way of understanding just how amazing life is. And if we go into the situation where we understand, I mean, you know, this we're symbionts. This this organism is more bacterial DNA in here than there is in the, the nuclear DNA, eukaryotic DNA. As a biologist, for example, I know that. You know, the, you know, a mitochondria, which people think of as the powerhouse of the cell, you know, around about three billion years ago or so ago, was a separate, a separate bacteria that got eaten up or engulfed or invaded another cell and they started to live as symbionts. We're symbionts. You know, we've got 10% viral DNA in here. 10% of this is viral DNA for each of us, not just this one, but all of us. It's not just this being is kind of riddled with bacteria. It's actually, you know, that's how it is. That's how it is. We're symbionts. You know, so staying, staying also in appreciation of the miracle of life all of life on this planet was dependent on photosynthesis. One green miracle, from a human perspective, it's a green miracle. From the from bacteria that live in volcanic vents, it's not a miracle at all. It's a bit of a frustration because it meant they couldn't live everywhere. They had to confine themselves to certain locations. But for us, complex life forms, the fact that photosynthesis happened, and, and by the way, photosynthesis happening released oxygen into the atmosphere, which is why you're breathing now. And, you know, that fact and the fact that oxygen being released into the environment enabled an atmosphere around this planet to be sustained. So all the hydrogen didn't blow off into space. And if you blow hydrogen off in space, you've got no water anymore. So it would have been a desiccated rock in space if it hadn't been for the green miracle of photosynthesis. And with this conversation wouldn't be happening and you wouldn't be breathing. So just just that, the fact that you're listening to this, the fact that you're sitting here, the fact that your body's breathing, just this is worthy of appreciation and a huge amount of gratitude. If you've got food on your table, that is worthy of appreciation. If you have a roof over your head, that is worthy of appreciation. So appreciation is really important. Observation, curiosity, appreciation. Kindness. Kindness is being kind to yourself, being gentle with yourself, being tender with yourself, like you would be with a young child as you're learning. And you're still learning. This is a learning environment. This is a learning organism. We're staying in the learning frame. So all of these are approaches to working effectively with stress over time that enable us to stay well and to stay optimal. And we're learning not just to you know, put a Band-Aid on the stress as it's happening, but learning how to unwrap all those patterns of how we create stress and that perceptual base so that we can unpattern all that stuff and live from a place of optimal. And that's what we're aiming for. And that's what the meta disciplines are giving us. Conscious breath work, mind training, meditative depth, embodied awareness. That's what they give. Take a breath. In through the nose. Out through the nose. Stand in through the nose, spread the nostrils wide, spread these little muscles here, breathe in. Breathe out through the mouth really slowly, like you're breathing out through a straw. Again, breathe in through the nose, spread the nostrils a little. Into your belly, feel your belly moving best you can. Get his belly open with the breath. So that's the diaphragm pushing down. Add in a little breath on the top, so it's kind of biphasic inhale, a double inhale. 
momentary touch into the fullness and then breathe out slowly through the mouth like you're breathing out through a straw. Another one, let's double inhale, just into the belly. Get this belly expanding all the way around, 360 all the way around. It's the diaphragm pushing down front, middle back of the diaphragm pushing down. Notice how good it feels, staying in appreciation for this miracle of life. Staying in a learning frame. Given things as they are now, what can I do from here? What choices do I have? Where is the leverage? And it's that momentary moment of awareness in complexity where it's given things as they are now. What can I do from here? What choices do I have? Where is the leverage? And that's a rapid movement into that kind of you know inquiry base from which we can then begin to mediate life begin to work well with life in that optimal frame and all of that comes from this learning frame and that learning frame itself comes from the the embodiment of the breath discipline the embodiment of the mind training the embodiment of awareness as the flesh embodied awareness as the flesh as the livingness of this body in movement and so forth and in breath movement particularly so what is this biology of stress what actually happens the thing is with stress is that first comes a stressor there's a phenomena of some kind that acts as a stressor we've talked about this already this kind of whatever it is maybe a thought maybe a feeling maybe a sensation in the body it could be something external environmental but something happens you know it if somebody makes a big noise if somebody goes makes a big noise you will have an adrenalized response and it's that that's that rapid but that phenomena acts as a stressor and this triggers a perception of and it's immediate and it's unconscious yes i can handle this or i'm in over my head and those two this this happens subcortically it happens immediately it's connected like i said to trauma it's connected to childhood adversity it's connected to what we learned as a child we've got all that in place and we're undoing those patterns but that's what happens you don't have time to think about it it just happens and of course, instantly, the key brain areas, the amygdala, subcortical activity in the brain, the hypothalamus and the pituitary kick in, and they take over the stress cascade. And what happens is information is sent from those parts of the brain down to the adrenal glands. Adrenaline is squirted out into the body. And that adrenaline shifts the way the blood moves in the body. It shifts blood up to the brain. It shifts blood to the muscles away from the guts. So when we eat, it's really important to pay attention to how we and when we eat as well and what state we're in as to how and when we eat. That blood shunting happens immediately. You know, the eyes dilate slightly, ready to deal with any situation. Breathing rate increases slightly. Breathing can change. Breathing pattern can change. But again, that's often individually um, learned behavior. And a lot around breathing is learned behaviors. It's not just it happens automatically. It's not like that. So some individuals may go into mouth breathing and hyperventilate a little bit, which then reduces carbon dioxide in the blood, which then creates more problems because we have less oxygen going to the brain. Some people go into apical breathing up here. Yeah. Different patterns. And again, that's a less than optimal breathing style if you're not super active. And even then it's questionable. So the stress cascade consists of stimulus, perception, neuroendocrine activation, physiology, and that ultimately behavior. And the behaviors we come up with, the stress behaviors, are one of three kinds in their base form. And one is moving towards something. It's moving outwards, whether it's going for something or whether it's 
an, an aggressive response to something, an attack. It's going towards something we want or it can head towards, but it's an outward energy movement. So one of the responses is an outward energy movement. Another response is a, a, a walling that can happen, a shutdown of indifference. We close down. I've seen this a lot, you know, city life, modern city life tends to do this to people. They kind of shut down, lock in. And it creates a certain muscular arming, maybe a shutting in the front line of the body, a slight tightening, yeah, a tightening around the jaw and the face. But you can see a tighter pattern happening. And that's kind of like a, you know, it doesn't matter. It doesn't bother me. It's none of my business kind of response. It's this indifference. And the third one is a withdrawal or pulling away. And that third energy is kind of like reflexive pulling away. And that goes all the way to a running away. Yeah, and ultimately to a freeze. So we get these these responses in the system. And these have been identified in different ways. Some people go into fight, which is that outward energy. Some people go into fright, which is an immediate kind of, you know, before you actually then make a response, which might be any one of those three types of energetic movement outwards, walling or uh, pulling away so fight flight flight is another one the running away we talked about yeah but we've also got freeze we talked about that which so it can be a walling an instantaneous defensive walling but it can also be a freeze like the rabbit in the headlights type feeling and it could be flop ultimately it can go into flop and again we could talk about um you know stephen porges's polyvagal model in relationship to this but i'm not going to go there just today i want to just keep this relatively simple today so, you know, the, the the flop where we collapse into something. Oh, I can't do this anymore. Now, I know all those places, and I'm sure you know all those places. So, again, with regard to optimizing, with regard to stress, we're getting familiar with those places in us. Fight, fright, flight, freeze, fawn, which is fawn, I didn't mention, by the way. Fawn is where you kind of make friends with uh, an aggressor. Yeah. So we've got all those places in us and we get familiar with those energies of movement and we can catch those again and make choices. What is the choices? What choice do I have here? What other choice do I have available to me? Because that starts to undo the pattern. It starts to work with the self-applied neuroplasticity where we're undoing the pattern of how we have been made by circumstances, relational situations and our own choices in that. And then finding more choice to change the pattern and do something differently. We have to catch those triggers. And the work of the meta-disciplines is then to catch those triggers and to be able to find that choice. So really the work of discipline is to find awareness. The work of discipline is to find awareness. And if we're working with stress, then that's what we need ultimately, is not just to do a little bit of box breath to handle the difficult situation, but actually to ultimately undo the pattern at its core and choose over time, a more optimal life. And for that, conscious breath work is absolutely necessary. It teaches us to down-regulate, to up-regulate, to optimize any patterns. And again, I'll talk about this on another podcast. I'll talk about the evolution of breath and the evolution of um, why we do certain kinds of pattern. But right now, just to say that, you know, we're undoing the learned behaviors, the patterns of how we suboptimally breathe in complex situations yeah and learning how to optimize that and that requires awareness so one of the things the breath you know systematic deep I'm not, I'm not talking here conscious breath i'm not talking about you know getting into a hypercapnic state very rapidly 
to deoxygenate your brain and see what happens. And there's value in doing that to a degree. I'm talking about a deeper, more systematic approach to conscious breath work, which teaches us a high level of awareness of psychophysiological, somatic uh, responsivity and awareness in all those complex strands and interweaves, along with the brain training, the mind training, along with the embodied awareness. And those, those meta-disciplines give us the edge in terms of working successfully, effectively with re-optimizing our whole system in relationship to the world, whatever our starting point is. And I can assure you, I've had to do the work and I still have to do it. Right. That's the way of things when we're really, really open to awareness, when we're really open in a learning frame. The learning frame ideally goes on to the point where we die. This is wonderful. This is all an amazing, wonderful opportunity to be able to dive deep into the nature of life. And working with stress and stressors is a key aspect because the stress represents the edges of our experience internally, psychologically, emotionally, physically, and also in relationally into the world. All of that is the edges of our experience. And that is the learning edge that we want to be in. You know, we're learning to live on the edge and to learn to be comfortable in the edge and learning to surf the edges of our experience in a good way. So that's a little bit of a conversation about stress. And I'm going to continue this next time by talking more about stress and breath and trauma. But thank you for tuning in. I've thoroughly enjoyed sharing some of this. So thank you very much. I look forward to seeing you in the next episode. <laughs>